fixate on code episode four. All right, Larry Buerta here, and you're listening to Fixate on Code, the weekly bite-sized podcast where I talk to the best devs about their favorite strategies for writing great code. And today, we'll be chatting to Chris Hailman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm a lot less chipper than you are, but I seem to be quite <laughs> happy with what's going on here. So I'm excited to be on the show and see what we can talk about. <laughs> Chris works at Microsoft on the Edge team, heading developer experience and evangelism. Prior to Microsoft, Chris helped push HTML5 support forward at Mozilla, and before that was a front-end architect at Yahoo, where he helped build products and train other Yahooers. Beyond that, Chris has been seen dozens of times giving talks at conferences all around the world, has been involved in writing a number of books, and has contributed to most every web development blog or publication you can think of all in the name of making the web better. Chris, can you fill in some of the gaps in that intro and tell me a little bit about what you get up to when you're not writing code? Well, I mean, there's quite some gaps in there, but that's uh, kind of boring. I mean, I've been doing this for 18 years now, and uh, so you jump around the market a lot. You find a lot of environments, and you, you, you jump over bandwagons as well. I've written the first Ajax book, for example, and uh, it's kind of an embarrassing, dirty word by now. And it's quite interesting to see how these different environments form you and what you do. It's like in Microsoft right now, I came from Mozilla from uh, focusing solely on the browser. And now I'm in a totally different world of like having a browser that is part of the operating system and also part of a cloud story and part of an input environment that I never worked with, like machine learning and with Cortana and these kind of things. So uh, there's a lot of stuff going on uh, that is exciting in our market. And that's why I am a developer, because in this 18 years, I haven't been bored yet. There's always something new to jump onto and something new to actually find out and learn and learn from other people as well. And that's why it's so so wonderful that we that we have this job. And it just, uh, I wished we could be we could find more happiness like pure human happiness from what we do and how well we offer anyways and that's the, a lot of what i'm doing right now also with the interviews that i'm doing with other developers i think we've moved from being the geeky kids in the corner that nobody wanted to talk about and just wanted to build e-commerce websites to running the medium that is actually controlling the world right now and controlling elections and doing things and we're not uh, uh, we're not doing enough to actually uh, have that my background is in radio journalism and uh, uh, then i became a developer and now i see all this converging and coming together again and i think it's up to us to see what the future of our jobs are going to be and it's not only about writing the least amount of code or the most amount of code or the sexiest code out there. I think we're focusing far too much on the technology, not realizing that we should be running the show that we're part of as well. So the landscape in web development has changed drastically in the past 10 years. Chris, can you take us through the steps that got you to where you are today? I think the, the most fascinating thing that got me to where I am today was that I never saw technology as a locked environment. I never saw it as something closed. I learned programming by uh, by cracking computer games and giving myself endless lives because I was very bad at playing them. <laughs> so, And later on, I found the web and I realized there's view source. I can learn from everything that's going on. I can debug in the environment that I'm writing the code in. And that was that, that immediacy between the creation and the consumption 
is what always excited me about programming and that keep, keeps me in there as well. I never got fascinated by writing a, a, a routine or a, a straight algorithm that actually has no, has no input. I, I want to use input uh, interfaces. I want to create things that people interact with and allows them to actually build things faster uh, find the next train station, find out what the weather is. Like I love the UX part of our jobs and uh, the, in, the, uh, the working together with designers and with UX designers to actually build interfaces for humans because computers to me are not a religion or something amazing. To me, they're just like a shovel. They're a tool to do a job that is too boring for me to, use a, to do as a human. And that's why I always wanted to, uh, to build things that people use and see the challenge of an unknown end user in an unknown environment as something that drove me rather than as something that a lot of developers see as terrible. The web is not defined. You cannot say which browsers people should use. You cannot tell what people, what environment people use. Nowadays, we don't even know what a connectivity is. It can be on a 2G connection somewhere in Africa. And our, our, our systems still need to be stable and usable for these end users. And I think that's a beautiful goal for us to do the whole like focus that we have lately on algorithmic development and like very cool hardcore uh, uh, like programming math comp size stuff is kind of alien to me and it's i'm not i'm not dismissing it i'm saying we need these things it's amazing what what about a, a really good developer that comes from that background can create and especially in iot environments and environments where you have like low-end machines it's very important to write very very op, uh, op, uh, organized code but I don't get excited about it. And I think we uh, we focus far too much on that. And that way we lock people out from our market that just want to start developing. They just want to get into the world to do something. And we bombard them with like, yeah, if you don't do it like that, then you're not a developer and you cannot do this. And I think that's the kind of rhetorics that we have to get rid of because we, we have to grow and we have to become more diverse because our end users is it are a diverse bunch? You don't know what background they have, what kind of biases they have, what kind of uh, abilities they have. And we as the people creating those things should be as diverse as our end users. Then we build products that people can use. So Chris, over the past 18 years, you've seen a lot of things in your career. Can you tell me about the worst experience you've ever had on a project? I think the worst experience was a project that we built in England that was supposed to be a um, internationalization platform and uh, a creation tool that we wrote in PHP back then, and uh, uh, we 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 wanted to prove that we can do it, and it started a hack at a hack fest, an internal one actually, or a hack day, and then we just pushed it in, pushed it in, put lots of effort in, like showed that it can do the things that we wanted to do. And then we, we uh, back then it was for an American company. We got the, uh, from top down, we got a system from America that was built in the Silicon Valley that was written in Java, supported only eight languages rather than the 72 that our product supported <laughs> and needed about eight times the amount of machines to run smoothly than the system that we built. But that's the one that got, uh, uh, that got delivered and that, uh, that we had to use afterwards as well. And it was all about politics and all about the product managers and the project managers being in the right space and the right environment and it was it's so much more expensive to build it in the silicon valley because it costs so much more to have developers there that the investment of the company into the system had to come out just by using it no matter how if it was technically uh, less advanced than what we did 
And that taught me a lot about that it's not about the technical excellence and it's not about the perfection of the tool itself, but it's also about how to sell it to your company and how to get the uh, the people who sit in meetings and do important work that we always dismiss as developers uh, to get them on your side as well. And that taught me a lot about like, okay, I can be the best developer on this planet, but if I don't get my company to use my things because somebody else is better at selling them, it's probably a good idea for me to be in these meetings and to be in this environment as well. That's why I moved away from being an architect or lead developer to now being a senior program manager because I think we should have the right to, to be in those decisions before they get put down on us. And it's nothing that is uh, uh, bad for you or that is like, uh, uh, like lying to the brotherhood of developers. But there's a lot of like this lashback when people get away from being a pure developer and get into a program manager role or a product manager role. People are like, okay, well, he's not a programmer anymore, so why should I bother with him? And you're like you've been there before as well. So it's very important that we get people to understand what we do and get people to appreciate what we do on a technical level, but also on a, uh, on a level for the business of the company. If we can't sell our tools uh, or we don't, we are not in, uh, in sync with the people that sell our products internally to the company, then something terrible will come out of it like this experience was back then. And a lot of people left the company after that and were just very frustrated about everything. And it's not helpful if that happens to any company right now. I think it's time for us to stand up and also own the the business side and the, uh, the the communication with our own company. The the idea of having developers and program managers and product managers that we had in the eighties have like a massive separation of that. I think that's kind of dangerous what we're doing nowadays. And when you get older, you also realize you don't want to sit eighteen hours in the office and, and code all day long. You want to you want to have other things to to deal with. That's why. When I hire people, I hire people that are better than me technically. And I think that's something that every developer should be ready to do in the future. You want to not be the person that maintains everything, does everything themselves. You want to get uh, freedom to do other things that annoyed you in the past as a developer. So you got to make sure that the people that you you get to uh, to mentor or the people that you get to train or the people that you later on get to hire are actually better than you in delivering the things that you are bought with. You know, otherwise, the quality of your product will uh, will be bad as well. And it's easy as a developer to dismiss marketing when it's vital to the discovery of what we're building. There's tons of amazing tools out there that are largely unknown and we often end up using a library that may not actually be that great. But we've got some big company backing it, so we assume it's the best tool. Now, Chris, on a daily basis, do you have any methods or tools or services that you use that you just hate to be without? I started getting into uh, uh, Visual Studio Code right now as my main editor. Uh, and I always thought the uh, the what we have in there that uh, uh, the the code completion and the code insights in the editor itself. I always thought this was kind of overkill because I was arrogant enough to think I know all this. Why should I computer uh, should I rely on an editor to do it for me? But I think uh, once I started using in uh, in editor linting 
and I started using in editor lookups. Uh, my my it was became so much more cleaner to write things, and it became so much more exciting to do things because uh, I don't go through the whole hoop of like writing something, going in the browser, reloading it, finding out an issue, going back to my editor, doing these kind of things. So what we can do nowadays with uh, connecting. Uh, development tools in the uh, in the end environment where we're running it with the operating system and the editor is quite stunning. My colleague uh, Kenneth Arkenberg here just released something right now where you can uh, uh, parallel debug and a USB connected phone and a Node instance from the editor without having to actually go through any of the logs of those things. It's just the error messaging happens directly in the editor itself. And this is a step that we only were able to do since we actually wrote our editors in the languages that we wrote our solutions in. Before that, we had APIs into the editors because they were written C++ and we had a chance to do it. But we um, we never had a chance to tinker with our editors ourselves. And that's something that is incredibly powerful nowadays. And of course, the uh, the lookup of things like pulling in documentation from the web into the editor itself or into the browser itself is a very, very cool thing as well. So you don't have the 15 tabs with Google open to look things up so that you get the hints what's happening or what's, what's problematic in what you're writing right now right in the editor. And I think that's a very, very powerful thing. Of course, there's a, it also means that it becomes much harder to be a developer nowadays because you have to set up all these development environments first. And I always <laughs> shrugged away from that. I always looked at like Visual Studio and I'm like, what the hell is that? But <laughs> when I see people using it and they know what they're doing, I know that it's like one or two weeks of setting up your environment and then you're getting used to it. Mm. And that's uh, that makes you much more efficient later on. Of course, the other issue with that is like you don't want to be you don't want to be restrained by one environment because when I worked at an agency, I changed the environment for every project, and sometimes I was running three projects at the same time. I think the biggest the biggest uh, trick that I learned then at that time was uh, never to actually be you can be an expert in one thing, but you should also be open to almost everything that can come to you, and then you start finding patterns in all the environments and all the development uh, methodologies that are all the same. So it's more about understanding, uh, more about becoming very fast in taking things on and using them, like your own on-ramping and your own hit-in-the-ground running has to become faster and faster than just being an expert in one thing because our environments die very quickly around us. And what is the coolest editor of today is in half a year's time, nobody will have any longer. And that's a, it's very dangerous to make yourself dependent on one stack. And uh, that's why it's it's good to, to be open to new environments and also be not afraid of asking people who are experts in those environments to help you rather than just trying to find out everything by yourself. So you're using Visual Studio Code and not Visual Studio. I use Visual Studio Code. I'm not using Visual Studio because it's sadly enough not platform, not cross-platform yet. Uh, Visual Studio Code is basically, uh, it's like Atom. It's an Electron-based editor uh, that is written in TypeScript so I can extend it myself. And it has Git implementation in it. It has a, co a, a command line interface inside the editor as well. Mm -hmm. So I have everything in one environment. And that's something that we never had before. And I really enjoyed that. I'm going to New York uh, in a month's time. And I'm running a course there for kids to get into IT. 
And instead of having to co- explain the terminal and instead of having to explain that, I'm like, okay, here is what Git means and here is how you can use it in the editor itself to get you used to it. Once you, you're happy with knowing what it does, then we go into the uh, into the command line interface to actually teach you everything about Git that you need to know. But it's a great opportunity to bring people into a full development stack without having to explain every part of the stack to them. And I think that's something we never had before. And you're not only tightening your feedback loop, you're, t- you're integrating your tool chain into a single tool. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I'm a, Vim, I'm a Vim user and I've got a number of tabs and panes open doing a bunch of things. And then I've got Tmux and I'm opening about five or six command line prompts at the same time to run different things. And so that's really amazing that you're bringing everything together into a single environment with Visual Studio Code. As much as Visual Studio has transformed your way of working though, where do you feel that there's still room for things to be done in a more effective way? Uh, I mean, a lot of frustration is happening because of, um, I, I guess it's because of uh, bad working with with each other. Especially my biggest problem is that we still haven't, uh, uh, and I, I've done a lot of work in that, is uh, uh, working as a remote employee in Europe for an American company is still incredibly frustrating. And I think it's incredibly bad that a lot of companies want their engineers to sit in an office next to each other instead of embracing the idea that people can work from home, have a social life, have a real life, and even better, test the environment like our end users do. If I have developers all over the world in all kind of weird connectivity states, that's exactly what we do as the uh, as our end users as well. Whereas like if I put my 20 developers in an office next to each other, give them a 100 megabit line and uh, the coolest, newest technology and the coolest, newest machines with the biggest resolutions, then I shouldn't be surprised if my end product is going to be heavy and slow for most users out there because most users don't have that privilege. So uh, the my frustrating part is that we uh, we don't communicate enough um, with each other worldwide, and we don't communicate enough outside of our environments. Instead, we get very excited about competing on hacker news if like a semicolon should be at the end of the line or the beginning of the line <laughs> and this is just frustrating to me because i had these discussions in 1997 on the irc already so we were going <laughs> back to, to 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 we're very introspective in these kind of things instead of just understanding that like even we will be replaced by computers sooner or later. And we talked about a bit before we did the recording here that we now have AIs that write code, that you just give unit tests and you give it a problem and it will write the code for you. And the more formulaic and the more structured our code becomes instead of just being code that is uh, good for the moment, the more we can be replaced by computers as well. And I think we're just... We, we should be ones using robots. We should not, not be the ones becoming robots. And uh, I find it bizarre that we kind of are. And especially when you said before that, like, you know, the real developer, that whole thing going on is just really frustrating because that's arrogance. That's just like, I, I, don't, I don't need this in an environment where we are so, so lucky. I mean, we are paid well, we have cushy jobs, if you think about it, and still we, the, the uh, burnout and the, the depression rate in our market is really, really high, and 90% of this, this pressure is actually self-made by, by competing ourselves with each other in terms of how cool we are as coders, rather than like, what do we need to do to get the product going? 
<laughs> and there's always a new fight, but we're often missing what we should actually be doing. Now, in terms of new projects, libraries, and frameworks, what are you most excited about at the moment? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive fan of the progressive web app stuff that's happening right now. And um, uh, we, we're pushing a lot in the company right now to get a different story angle to that one as well, because it's a, uh, it's been monopolized by one player without them wanting to. It's like as soon as as soon as one tech company invents something, all the fanboys basically say like, oh, cool, they did that. Why do the others don't do the same? Rather than understanding that every new technology needs input from various different angles to become a thing. But I mean, I've been frustrated with the whole concept of native apps on mobile for a long, long time. I gave a TED talk about this where I just explained that it's the biggest step backward in software distribution. We made, uh, by, by allowing native apps to go into marketplaces and locking people into these environments, we made software a consumable product that can rust and fall apart, which software isn't. Software is water. It should change easily and simply. And when I see progressive web app stack, what's going on there with uh, uh, with service worker and with with web manifest is that we could build uh, applications that are on demand, and I can just go to a URL and the thing installs itself by using it rather than just going through a massive install process where you have to give your credit card details and five pints of blood and the, the name of your firstborn before <laughs> you're actually allowed to make two two game two two balls <laughs> crash against each other and have different colors and make sounds so we, we stepped back into the whole using the web as a distribution model and with progressive web apps and that that whole stack idea we're going back to that we're bringing the best of the web into the app space and i think that's a very very important part the other thing of course that gets me super excited because i'm too stupid for it and it it makes me feel uh, uh, makes me feel not worried, but excited, being with very intelligent people who show me what's done is the whole machine learning and of artificial intelligence thing. That we can build interfaces that understand what humans are doing, that we can make blind people see by recognizing uh, objects and telling them what they are just by pointing a camera to it is just ridiculously beautiful. Mm. And especially also in terms of security and in terms of uh, in terms of identity, like being able to look into my machine with Windows Hello and it recognizes my face and I don't have to type in a password anymore. That's just a beautiful thing that can be done. Some banks in England now use voice recognition together with a PIN uh, instead of just having to type in 10,000 passwords on your phone. That's another very interesting part. Facebook just announced that they now have a uh, suicide prevention thing going on and art AI that, that monitors what people are saying and makes sure that people are okay. That sounds a bit creepy, but I'm, I'm think it's a very, it's very interesting what we can do with that. I, I, I wrote a blog post the other day where I was in New York and I worked with Weill Cornell University and a hospital there. And I felt like, oh my God, what am I doing? They're going to find out that I'm stupid. But uh, <laughs> they, they, they still liked me there. But they did 10 years of research of virtual reality uh, uh, visualizations of uh, MRI scans. So you sat in a room with like a 3D glasses on and you just walk through some bo a human's body and you could zoom into every part and take it apart instead of having getting your fingers icky. And that's just amazing. <laughs> they also now do HoloLens research. I'm going to meet them again next week where they're doing modeling of, uh, of cancer medication in, uh, in the virtual space with like HoloLens and four people in the room working together on putting and simulating different uh, uh, chemical compounds. And wow. I'm like, this is Iron Man, you know? This is like <laughs> what we saw in the cinema and paid money for. And now I'm being part of this. And this is just... 
amazing how uh, how when you open your mind a bit and you just get interested you get in, uh, introduced to people like that and you just realize there's a great future ahead where we actually almost at the stage where star trek technology is in our day-to-day -day life we just forgot to uh to amend humanity to actually understand what that means we're still running after like uh money and uh, and like beating other people in competitions rather than understanding that knowledge sharing is what what's really interesting Wow, you are being exposed to things that will be the envy of everyone. I can't actually believe half the stuff you're telling me. It just sounds insane. Now, Chris, with all of the new languages and all these amazing things that are coming out, how do you decide on what you want to learn and how do you make time to learn new things? I think the good thing is having had an education as a journalist, you, you have a massive radar of what is hype and what is not. So a lot of times you just like, oh my God, I got to be part of this. And then you look at it and you're like, yeah, it's just a press release. This, they don't have anything really exciting going on there. So, um, I mean, I love playing with things when I'm on offline time, like when I'm on a plane or when I'm on a bad connection. It's kind of like sad that we have to go that way, but going offline and playing with things, not getting like updates from Facebook and Twitter and like your, your parents calling you and all kinds of things all the time is a very important part. I played uh, with Vue.js a lot. That's the new thing, the new hotness at the moment. I looked with React a bit, of course. Node has been around for quite a while, but it's doing leaps and bounds now as well. And uh, it's kind of it's hard for me to get myself excited when I go through another Hello World or to-do list uh, application. <laughs> so uh, um, what I find really exciting is that in our case, we have these hackfests where we have partners that come up to us and say like, hey, we want to work on these technologies. Do you have somebody in Microsoft that can come around and help us with that? And I uh, deliberately go to those where it's technologies that I don't know to actually prove myself that I can still do it and to actually get get myself out of my comfort zone, which is, uh, of course, a massive gamble. And like it's kind of fun to stand in front of a client that asks you to come around and then admit to them that you don't know that. But I think it's also very important for this to actually, uh, to get uh, in terms of getting the client to understand that you are there to help them with the infrastructure and with making the thing work, not to write the code for them. So when you as the uh, as a, an ongoing expert learn something together with the client or something based on their problems that they have to solve, so a real-world problem, it's much faster for me to learn something. I found over the years that teaching something is the best way to learn something. And it sounds weird because it seems like, why should you be a teacher if you don't know it yet? But uh, the, then you don't have a way out. I mean, I wrote JavaScript commercially for five, six years before I wrote my first JavaScript book. And then I realized that for five, six years, I've been just copying and pasting and randomly doing things <laughs> and hoping that something doesn't break. But when I started writing the book, I knew there was no excuse anymore. I had to know it. And I had to teach myself to do it and jump over my own shadow because... With the ubiquity of technology that we have nowadays, it's very easy to use a, a boilerplate thing and build something amazing and then call yourself an expert. But you also need to put the effort into understand what you're doing sooner or later. And this is something that we're learning as a market right now. Like if you look at Node and NPM, uh, people use lots and lots of modules that they don't know what they're doing because it allows them to hit the ground running really quickly and build something fast, uh, uh, a most valuable product uh, immediately. 
but we uh, when things break or when there are security issues with that, we have a real problem tracking down where something came from because people use a lot of code that they don't understand. By no means you have to understand everything, but I think it's very important to go past the stage of like, I built something cool with this cool new technology and now I love it for the end of time and everybody not using it is, is basically another developer. When we, if we're honest with ourselves, don't understand the thing that we're doing either. So it's it's a matter of like going to first product as fast as possible. But if you really want to be an expert on something, you have to take your downtime. And that's sometimes just saying like, okay, I'm not going to come to the office tomorrow. I'm just going to play with Node for a day and uh, and then write a report of what I found and what bugs I found in our products if we want to use Node, for example, on Bash on Windows. And it's uh, it's weird how many people don't understand that our companies are actually okay with that. Because in essence, we want to maintain our developers. Every developer coming through the door costs the company $20,000, even before they start writing the first line of code. So keeping people happy is an important thing. And if you show that you're interested in uh, in getting better yourself rather than waiting for a perfect training course to come down from top down, that's something that I value in a developer as well if I hire them. And there's such a reliance on frameworks too, instead of just getting a deeper understanding of the languages that we're working with. If you look at Stack Overflow with a number of jQuery questions, and if only those people knew just how close they were to writing plain good old JavaScript. Now, Chris, which specific aspects about programming has dramatically changed the way that you think about and write code? Um, I think getting my head around something like uh, events and promises was something that really, really made a difference. Um, to understand that, like uh, that, like I don't need to maintain everything. I can help them. It, it, that's web development. To basically that the browser can do a lot of stuff for me. To see the browser as an input device, much like you see the end user as an input device, is something very important to understand. Also, to get my head around the DOM and understand what it does. I mean, nowadays we're all about virtual DOMs and stuff, but the DOM will not go away. So you can still do a lot of terrible things to the browser without knowing it if you don't understand what's <laughs> going on in there. I think these are the bits that uh, that helped me the most. And um, what I really enjoyed as well is like, I'm getting my head around functional programming right now. I mean, that's the hot new thing as well. And uh, especially going back to old school stuff, like clean code, like that's a book from 66 or something like that. And uh, I think that's a very important part to understand that we've been muddling along for a long time right now. It's time to get uh, to take uh, more of a quality approach to what we're doing. To, to have more pride in what we're writing. And you, you gave a great example with the jQuery thing. But we, the mistake that we made there is not to tell people that like uh, uh, they should be using jQuery for the beginning to write something quick and to release something quick. I think we have to be very thankful that jQuery was there because it allowed the web market to grow as fast as it was right now. The bigger problem is that we never told people like to keep it up to date as well and to keep an eye on what jQuery does that browsers don't do yet. And when browsers start doing that and the old browsers that you're still supporting with jQuery that are not available anymore, that should actually be just done, uh, that this is this is the reliance that you should be getting rid of. So we, we always sell these new technologies or these new libraries and frameworks as a faster way of building something. But what we also should sell them as is as a way to create something now that later on will be natively supported. We don't have to. We don't have to work around anymore. So, as you said, we become dependent on our abstractions, 
And that's a very dangerous uh, uh, issue because abstractions come and go. They're, they're as fashionable as everything else is. So being a jQuery expert nowadays basically gives you a, a good opportunity to go in the mid-range market, but not for the cool companies nowadays anymore because you only learn jQuery. You made yourself dependent on something that was a bug fix or that was a stopgap solution. Wow, I had no idea clean code was from the 60s. Yeah, and the concepts that have come out of clean code are still holding true, and it's the same with functional programming. I mean, these ideas are keeping us in place and where we can write quality stuff, and they help drive us to progress in a more effective way. I was trying to look up when it was, so I don't think it was the 60s, but it doesn't matter. It was, it's rather old. It's 19, he started in 1970, Uncle Bob, but yeah, okay. Um, I, I'm always getting very confused about this when I go to development events and people get very excited about these, oh, I remember what that person did in 1982? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about or who you're talking about, but cool. <laughs> but you're totally right. Like, I think uh, me lacking a uh, education in computer science uh, to a degree was beneficial because I was fearless. I basically didn't care when something breaks and I basically had a chance to to trail my uh, blaze my trail that way. But uh, sooner or later, it will come back to you and you should find a way to actually understand that. I want to uh, push a, a product from a friend of mine uh, um, uh, called the Imposter's Handbook that way. Oh, yeah. This is really, really cool. It's by, it's by Rob Blandon and uh, it's, it's online. It's actually not that expensive. And online, you can read it as well for free. And uh, he is the same problem as me. He's basically, he was very successful with, well, he was much more successful with his product than I was. He did a, a database and, uh, uh, and he never had a computer science background. So he, he basically got all the bombarded with these very intelligent questions that he had no idea about. And so he wrote this book about like uh, explaining how as an imposter without wanting to be becoming an imposter, how he now taught himself all the things that he was supposed to know. <laughs> and I think it's a very, very interesting approach rather than like the, okay, here's your Knut kind of like 16 books, go read through them or another real developer. <laughs> it's a very simple way to get yourself to be honest with yourself and read up on the things that you should know. Which is a very bizarre thing. As soon as you're visible, like I am or other people are, people expect you to know everything. You know, I, 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 I named a JavaScript uh, uh, pattern because I found it a really good way of writing something. And people come up to me and tell me all the cool things that they've done with my pattern and how it means memory consumption and these kind of things. And I'm just sitting there nodding and I'm like, you're really intelligent. I have no idea what you did just right <laughs> now, but you're looking up to me. So I cannot say I don't know what you're saying right now, but I'm just scratching my chin and look very intelligent, this kind of thing. But I, uh, it's... It's amazing how these uh, truths come back to you sooner or later because we're still working with computers. I think once we get into quantum computing and we get into like uh, even biological computers, uh, which might be something in the future, a lot of these things will go away as well. But uh, Moore's law is 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 on the tipping point right now. We can we can do a lot with that, putting more machines into it and more cores and more memory into it. But if our code is clean and actually works fast, that's probably a good thing too. Most definitely. And with that, we've come to the end of our first segment. Chris, I'm about to throw some quick-fire questions your way. Let's do this. What is the best advice about programming you've ever received? Be open to everything that's coming your way. Don't dismiss something because you don't understand it, but understand how something gets used before you actually apply your own best practices to it. Which personal habits do you attribute to writing better code? 
being lazy up front and then being very diligent in my own editing. That's how I write my texts as well. I write everything down and then I delete as much as I can, rephrase five <laughs> times. Rather than just trying to write the perfect code from the beginning, I'm, I'm writing unspeakable things first <laughs> and then I start uh, uh, analyzing them, how they work, and that's become better that way. <laughs> that costs a bit more time, but in the end, I write my unit tests while I'm writing my code that way. Chris, if you could recommend one book on programming, what would it be and why? Huh. I think the Imposter's Handbook is something that is super exciting right now because it's a, it's a nice uh, uh, way to get yourself into computer science without, uh, uh, without the overhead and the stuffiness that comes with it. It's a very, very nice way to get yourself understanding where people come from rather than having to learn it yourself. And we'll definitely add Imposter's Handbook to our show notes. Now, Chris, who in the front-end world is doing work that really inspires you? Oh, there's far too many to mention. I mean, there's a few people out there that just drive me crazy with what they're <laughs> doing. I mean, like uh, uh, Leah Baru does some really good work. Uh, Sarah Suedin is somebody who's really, really mm-hmm. good right now. I mean, there's there's, there's crazily intelligent people like uh, like Alex Russell, for example, that always like, I like to disagree with him. And then half a year later, I have to say, yeah, you were right, <laughs> damn it. But um and there's some incredibly hardworking people out there that do uh, that just amaze me by how much they can put out. Like Adi Osmani from Google is another person that I really, really like. And uh, um, uh, Jake Archibald is also a very intelligent, uh, uh, down-to-earth developer. Um, I mean, a lot of people in Google, weirdly enough, that actually they manage to hire a lot of clever people. Paul Kindlin as well is, is really, really good what he's doing. I like people who are very intelligent in their code, but not arrogant about it. And that's uh, sadly enough a, a collector's item. We have to have get more of those people. Chris, imagine you wake up and you have no recollection of ever writing code. With the tools, books, and courses available today, how would you go about learning to program from scratch? Probably, but nowadays I would probably just use uh, use the web and search something. Like all these interactive courses are incredibly, I mean, Udemy, the uh, uh, Khan Academy, uh, all these like uh, uh, online learn programming while you're using it in the browser is something I would have loved to have when I started. There's a lot of cool stuff happening in the education space that uses the web to teach the web. And I think that's something we should support more as the people in the know as well and not discard as something, oh, that's only for beginners. Chris, let's wrap up today with your top tip on how to work smart and then the best way to connect with you. Make sure that you find time for your development. Like take your time and go and don't do anything else. Turn off all distractions around you and just do it. It sounds weird because it's antisocial, but a lot of times finding things on your own and hammering it is not embarrassing. So that's the cool thing. So you basically, you can be your own critic that way. The best way to contact me is uh, on Twitter, code poet on Twitter with C-O-D-E-P-O-8 at the end, the number eight. And um, yeah. To everyone out there, you've been hanging with Christian Hellman and Larry Buerta. Head over to fixate.it where you'll find links and timestamps for everything we've been speaking about today. And Chris, thank you for sharing your journey with Fixate on Code today. Keep pushing the limits and keep pushing great code. 